Okay, I believe that's five minutes up. If you guys want to um, finish up getting your drinks and find your seats, that would be really helpful. Charlotte, are you going to be able to help me with readings? Yeah, well, it's going to be through the whole... You're just going to have to pick people. The words are going to come up there. Yeah, perfect. Okay. Right, guys, there we go. Deep breath. We're out of Easter. He is risen. And we're back into Mark before he was risen. Uh, and that's great, really, because that's really the way we get to approach the scriptures and approach Jesus' teachings in general with the context of his resurrection, his victory, and all that that means to us. And so it makes it so much easier for us to understand what Jesus was on about half the time. And as we can see from his disciples, as we've been journeying through Mark, it's challenging. It's challenging for them. Um, it's challenging for those around them. Jesus has seen people come to him, look to him as a good teacher, want to follow him because of the miracles that he is performing, then getting worried because of some of the things that he says. Um, there's wavering and concern. Um, there's a lot of anxiety amongst the religious elite because Jesus is threatening their very way of life. It's an interesting mix, to say the least. But we get to watch now as we go back into Mark, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 now, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read through to verse 31. It's a big chunk of scripture. It deals with some really hairy topics. Um, but what I don't want us to miss is the general direction, the, the big thrust, the big picture, the, the place that Jesus is taking us to and the place Mark is taking us to by picking out these stories and putting them next to each other. Um, something I learned as a, a designer is that juxtapositioning is everything. In, in, in normal parlance context, you can take a flower and put it next to a rock, and it looks completely different to if you put it amongst a bunch of other flowers, it stands out. So these juxtapositionings of stories are important. And Jesus is teaching us about discipleship. That's what he's doing. He's been in Galilee, in particular in Capernaum, Capernaum? And he is now moving on into Judea. And uh, as he's in Judea, he continues teaching about discipleship. And um, Mark pulls out three instances of teaching in the section for us. Th these are teaching bits, talking bits. And as we've realized, Mark's a, a man of action. It's all about doing. Um, so when Mark records the words of Jesus... It's really important for us to take note. These are words that Mark wants us to hear and he wants us to hear clearly. So today we're going to look at marriage. The word marriage doesn't come up that often. Actually, the word divorce comes up more often in this particular section. But what I want us to look at in that, the big theme in that section is that disciples should be learning how to stay faithful, how to stay committed, how to remain responsible rather than looking for a way out of their obligations. That's the big story. That's the big theme. The, then we're going to learn about children. We're going to see Jesus as the people um, bring their children to him and want him to touch them, to bless them. And the big theme there is that disciples should come to Christ 
with nothing of their own. They've got nothing to offer. They are empty of power and status. You don't come to Jesus with your credentials. You come to him with your emptiness. And then thirdly, we're going to look at a section. Mark calls him a man from Matthew. We know that he is a rich man and he is a young man. Sometimes we call him the rich young ruler. But the big theme there, this is really a section on possessions and the power that possessions can have on you. The big theme there is that disciples should be completely dependent on Christ for their provision, not just their stuff. It's provision in this life, but it's also their provision for the next. Self-sufficiency and self-righteousness will put you on a road that leads away from God, not towards God. And that is a big theme in Jesus' teaching, especially to the Jews, especially amongst the Pharisees. The law of God is there to draw you towards God, and it should draw you towards Jesus. If it doesn't, it is insufficient to save you. So as a disciple, you should be relying on Christ for eternal life, not on your ability to fulfill the moral law. So those are the big themes that we're going to look at. Of course, there's so much else that we could learn from this text. I've taught on parts of this text before, and I've gone on for 50 minutes on each part. There's so much. There's rich stuff, but we're not going to go into all of that. We're going to stick to this. Jesus is looking for disciples who will pursue God's perfect plan, completely dependent on Him, for everything because they are aware that they are ill-equipped for this task. Make sense? Could we please have someone to read the first section of Scripture for us? It will be on the screen. Next, there we go. It'll be two slides, this one. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Okay. So a bit of context for you. Um, I think sometimes we think um, in the olden days, people were better at these things. But let me just um, paint a picture for you of what marriage in ancient Judaism at the time of Jesus was like. Basically, it was not a union of two equals. This was not a society in which men and women were considered equal and a marriage was a joint decision for them to come together for for mutual benefit. It was primarily an institution for the establishment and the continuance of family, family line. 
um, and it was dominated by the man, and a woman and a child's status in society was determined by their association with that man. So if you go into a lot of the rabbinical texts, you'll see a lot of mention of women and children and how um, they are important, but important because of the way that they relate to that man, rather than in today's society where we, we consider people important in and of themselves. In, in Jewish, Jewish society at the time, that was not the case, and it was certainly not the case for marriage. Now, the way Jesus responds in this section really pushes against that social context. It, it kind of uh, emphasizes, by talking about man and woman being created together by the fact that they come together as one, um, and as we go further, the fact that the man is referred to as divorcing his wife as well as the wife divorcing her husband means that he's pushing against that. He sees them as, as equals. He emphasizes not just their equality, but that both husband and wife are equally responsible for upholding marriage as a God-created institution. It's a God-created institution. They were no longer two flesh, but one. God creates something new in the marriage. So they were responsible for upholding that. And the way to do that was through lifelong obedience and discipleship. Um, The fact that the Pharisees asked this question, is it, lawful for a man to divorce his wife is, is somewhat surprising unless you read the, the, the parallel recording in Matthew 19 verse 3 because it was completely understood that it was indeed allowed in Jewish law for a man to divorce his wife. The only real question at that time was what were the grounds? For what reasons could a man divorce his wife? And in Matthew 19, verse 3, it says it like that. It says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, that's contentious. Basically, at the man's womb, any reason he could find, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The more conservative views upheld that only in the case of adultery could a man divorce his wife, whereas there were a lot of other very liberal views on what Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 actually meant. They would say that divorce could be granted for for any matter. There's references to um, you're able to divorce your wife if they're not able to prepare a meal in the way that you would like. (laughs) I wonder if it's you know, the adverse is true. Could the woman divorce the man if he didn't prepare a meal ever? Uh, <laughs> that, that's insane. It, there were references even to even if the husband no longer found her as attractive as he once did. Could they divorce then? And, and there were interpretations that said, yes, that was in fact the case and they could. In any case, the question was a trap, it was a a test. Whenever the Pharisees ask Jesus a question, it's not open and looking for an honest answer. They're not looking to learn from him. And perhaps it's to force him into a corner regarding Herod Antipas's divorce so that he could marry Herodias 
Remember that little situation that cost John the Baptist his head? Maybe it was about pushing him into a corner there and putting him in a position where he would have to publicly make it clear that Herod Antipas's divorce was not legitimate. Um, but even if that wasn't the context of the question, what they did believe is that he held different views to them. And as far as they were concerned, if he held different views to them, then he held different views to the Torah. And if they could get him to refute the authority of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, they would demolish his position and they would reduce his popularity and help quell the political upheaval that they could see coming. The bottom line was that they wanted two things from this. They wanted to maintain a permissive divorce policy. It worked for them. And at the same time, they wanted to discredit Jesus. So that was the reason they asked him. It was a trap. And let's be honest, their stance was that marriage was a disposable contractual arrangement. They didn't ask about anything else, but twice in the passage they asked on what grounds it could be dissolved. A bit like, a bit like someone who, who goes and gets a big loan from a bank and then immediately starts inquiring on what grounds they can be absolved of their responsibility to repay that loan. That's what they were doing. And I don't know about you, but that kind of person is not the kind of person you want to do business with. So when they come to Jesus, and that's the first thing they ask about marriage, they're kind of looking at it the same way. How can we get all the benefits with none of the obligations? Now the truth is that the original intention of the law that they are quoting, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, was not to encourage divorce. It was actually to make it very difficult. Number one, if a man chose to leave his wife, he would have to offer a reason for the divorce. Before that, they didn't have to do that. And if the person that they were divorcing got remarried and then divorced again, they were not allowed to remarry them. So it kind of put obstacles in the way of divorce. It made people think a little bit more carefully about what they were about to do. It was also intended to offer an equitable ruling in the unfortunate event of a divorce. It gave the divorcee some dignity, and it also gave them the right to remarry. But the question from the Pharisees moves it from, from a limit of the ill effects of divorce, and it turns it into a pretext for divorce. That's what they're focusing on all the time. Instead of talking about God's original intention for marriage, they're talking about how to get out of it. So when Jesus asks them, what did Moses command you? He wouldn't have been surprised by the answer, not in the least, but he does not acknowledge it as conclusive. He reminds them that this was allowed because your hearts were hard. This was allowed because your hearts were hard. In other words, you were going there anyway, and the damage that it was going to cause was devastating. So Moses put in a law that would limit that. It was always going to be an exceptional measure required for when marriage failed, and, and is of no value 
absolutely no value if you want to discover the true meaning and intention of marriage. It's like, it's like studying the instructions on how to crash land a plane instead of learning how to fly. That's what they were doing. They were trying to figure out how to get out of the mess before they even knew how to fly the plane. And that's how Jesus responds to them. He, he doesn't refute Torah. He does this brilliant Jesus thing where he sees their trap and he doesn't enter into the argument and start talking about all the exceptions to the rule where this could be different. He just goes for the jugular. He says, right, I'm not going to refute Torah. This is a preventative measure. I'm going to appeal to Genesis 1 verse 27. His opponents are asking what is permissible and he points to what God originally commanded. Jesus teaches that God's will for marriage, well, he teaches God's will for marriage rather than arguing about the possible exceptions to it. The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. A new creation. What God has joined together, let man not separate. There's a lot that we could discuss here, but the principal difference between the rabbis of the time, represented by the views of the Pharisees in this text, and Jesus' teaching is this. The rabbis made the husband, the man, the Lord of marriage. But Jesus taught that neither the man nor the woman were the Lord of marriage, but God is. God created marriage, God joined the two flesh, God created one new creation, and what God has put together, let no man separate. Charlotte, I'm gonna ask you if you can find me another willing volunteer. Who's gonna put up their hand to read the next piece for Charlotte? It is from verse 10 through to 12, so it's a quick one. Thanks, Dave. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thanks, Dave. And these three verses have caused so much trouble. So much pain, so much heartache, so much misunderstanding. I just want to spend a little bit of time around these. He's number one, he's stepped away. He's with his disciples, he's in a room. And when that happens, this is about further teaching on the same topic. And the fact that the disciples asked him about this again means that they worried about it. There's something that's concerning them about this teaching. And instead of him kind of going backward and saying this and this was something that I had to deal with with the Pharisees in public because they were testing me, he reinforces his teaching. What he taught the Pharisees is what he teaches the disciples, except he makes it even clearer. And what I want you to see here is that the main thrust of his discourse is that he doesn't want to discuss the exceptional grounds upon which a marriage does break down. They do break down. But rather than talking about them all the time and those failures all the time, he wants to talk about the original purpose, the original design, the original intent of marriage. It's not a male-dominated contractual arrangement for the perpetuation of family. It's not an arrangement that can be dissolved when one partner bores of the other or has found someone better. 
It's not based on feelings and emotions. And even if one party has been grievously wronged by the other, it seems that the original design and intention does not change. In fact, if you are to believe the full teaching of the Bible, forgiveness and reconciliation is always preferred from dissolution of the marriage. Always preferred. Because God has made in marriage a new creation. And that's what, God, what Jesus is reinforcing when he says that they commit adultery if they remarry. Because he's saying, God put two people together, they became one. What man can tear those apart? He's reinforcing how serious an institution, how important this is. And human failure does not alter that original purpose. But we live in a world that's broken. We live in a world that's fallen. We live in a world where people make mistakes and mess up in their relationships every single day. And what I want you to understand as we get to the end of this little section is this. Jesus is elevating the importance and the significance of marriage to the Pharisees and to his disciples, and he's elevating it to us. But what he is not saying, what he is not doing is he's not shackling those of us who have already failed in our marriages. He's not saying that there's no hope for you if you have failed in marriage. We are taught in Mark 3 verse 28 that all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. And if it's a breakdown of marriage, God can forgive you of that. There is no instance in Scripture where a person seeking forgiveness is denied it by God. There's no quote anywhere in Scripture to say that this, above all other sins, is unforgivable. But it is a sin, and the consequences of it are grievous not only to the individuals involved, but to the family and the society that they belong in. And God, Jesus wanted to make sure that we understood that. He also wanted to make sure that we understood that this is a picture of what discipleship looks like. When I prayed for Andy and Heather, I prayed for a couple that were willing to seek out the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And that is the heart of a disciple. We can all just squeak into the kingdom of heaven ever so slightly and then wonder what we can get away with as we skirt around the, the, the rules. What's it, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? What can I get away with? The true heart of a disciple isn't like that. It's not looking for the outs. It's not looking for the things that we can we can get away with. It's not looking for how do I get out of paying back my bank loan. The heart of a disciple is how do I push straight in to the perfect, pleasing will of God? How do I get after that? And when Jesus gets into your heart, that's what he does to you. And when you see Andy and Heather, those are the cons that's the consequence of being a disciple. So it's amazing. It's exciting. It takes sacrifice and it can be challenging, but God provides everything just as he does in marriage. And for some of us, it can be, as you think, sitting there, you're thinking, this, this for me is about my marriage. For some of us, it might be about, am I listening to God, or am I just kind of, kind of on, the, on the edge? I don't really want to hear his voice because I'm too darn scared. 
about what he might call me to. Maybe it's something simple, like on a Sunday, we are called together to come and worship Jesus Christ. And when we stand here, we offer our hearts, our very best to him. But for some of you, it might feel like you're kind of dragging yourself in. Let me tell you something. This is not about how you feel. This is not about entertainment. Coming to church and worshiping God is about giving yourself, pushing into Him, offering the very little that you have to Him because you love Him so much. Maybe it's that for you. So the real question out of the section that's posed for us in this day and age of impermanence and casual relationships is whether we will hear the call of Christ to committed discipleship in our marriages and in the rest of our life. Will we seek relief and escape in what is permitted, or will we commit ourselves to what is intended by God and commanded by Christ? Right, I need another willing volunteer. We're going to move away from marriage and toward little children. From verse 13 through to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Thank you, David. So remember what I said about women and children. They were not regarded very highly in ancient Jewish culture, unless, except for in... Um, in their status to the man. And little children under the age of 13 were, were regarded very lowly, except in the fact that they can continue the, the line of the family. So when they became 13 and they were men, then, or women, sorry, then, then things changed. But the, the affection that Jesus shows children is not normal. Is just not normal for their society. And it's important for us to understand that. It's also important for us to look at that and understand what his disciples are doing. So his disciples here are, are kind of still behaving in line with social standards, societal standards. This is what is expected. This is a, Jesus is a great teacher. He's in public. And, and parents shouldn't be letting their children come and pester him because he's too important. So they're more, more focused on those than, than on Jesus' standards that, that he, he has been teaching them. And it doesn't really come through in the text, but Jesus' response here is extreme. This is the, the only time in the Gospels that Jesus is described as indignant. And I think British indignant is a little bit like this. I'm going to talk to my wife about that later. I was so angry, I was shouting at them in my head. That told them. <laughs> That's not what indignant means. The word, the word is agonectin, and it means to arouse anger. The, the, the definition is to vent, to vent in expressed displeasure, not just brood about it. Jesus was really, really miffed. He was upset, and he let his disciples know it. 
And that reveals a whole lot about Jesus. It reveals a whole lot about his compassion and his defense of those that are helpless and vulnerable and powerless. And that's really what children represented here. These were those that had no status in society, no, no equity, no value. And he tells his disciples to let the children come to him unhindered, for the kingdom of God belongs to ones like them. In Jewish society, if you were rich and wealthy and blessed and you had status and lovely clothes, you were that. Those are the people that you looked to and said God was blessing them. And Jesus would always go to the lowly. He would go to the children. He would go to the Samaritan woman at the well who had multiple partners. And he would talk to them and love them and bless them and teach them about the kingdom of heaven. So he does it again with the children. The kingdom of God belongs to ones like them. And again, he reinforces it saying that if one does not enter the kingdom of God like a child, one, sorry, does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, he will not enter it. But what does he mean by that? What, what does it mean to be a child? What is it that's uniquely childlike that grants one access to the kingdom of God? And I've heard it taught that childlikeness refers to their innocence. I've had a child. I've had three. I'm not sure that innocence can just be ascribed to every child. Let me put it that way. Um, their spontaneity. Well, again, yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, especially boys. I've heard it said that boys, the difference between boys and girls is they jump over a gate before looking. Um, humility, or, or even their naivety, or we, sometimes we call that simple faith. They just believe you. They just come simply and, and believe what you're saying. But it's not mentioned. Those those. Attributes are not mentioned in this text. The emphasis in this text is the children themselves. It's them, the nouns, not, not, not the adjectives. Jesus is saying that these children, ones like these children, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, also, if we are to assume that all of these other attributes are the things that Jesus was looking at, then, then the disciples would need to have them as well, and I'm not going to go on too much about that, but you know that they don't. Um, they, have, they have shown the opposite of those virtues. And to be honest with you, I reckon in this whole discourse, the disciples are getting more and more uncomfortable. They're getting a little bit more nervous the whole way through, thinking teepers. The way Jesus is talking, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I believe firmly that what, what, what Christ had in mind here when he was talking about those children, it was not about virtues. They weren't blessed because of what they had. They were blessed because of what they didn't have. They were blessed because of their lack, because they were small, because they were powerless, without sophistication, without status, they were overlooked, and they were dispossessed. It seems the lesson here is that to receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has nothing to bring to the table, nothing to offer to the relationship, nothing to add to the pot, a lack. It seems that being 
A disciple like a child means to be a disciple that has empty hands, that are ready to be filled. Can we have another volunteer, please? Thanks, Kay. This is from verse 17 through to 22. We're going to meet our rich young ruler. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, Teach all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Thank you, Kay. So we've learned from marriage that disciples don't take the easy option, that they look for God's will, his intention, and his design. We've learned from little children that disciples come empty-handed into the kingdom of God. And now we meet a wealthy young man who, who couldn't be more different couldn't be more of a contrast to the children we've just met. He has, he has, they have nothing, he has everything. He has money, he has status, and seemingly he has piety. He is, he is one who observes the law carefully. And he's actually quite an amazing young man because he certainly sees the kingdom of God a lot clearer than anyone else so far in Mark's gospel. If you think about the, the, the two things he said, he calls Jesus a good teacher, um, rabbis would very, very rarely accept that as a title because they'd be nervous of blasphemy. Good was something that you would use to ascribe God's character, not a man's. So to call him good teacher is a, is a bold move and an indication of who he thought Jesus was. Plus, he asks the most important question, the one Everyone else should have been asking, but hadn't. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, finally, Jesus is asked a question that can divulge the meaning of his entire ministry. But in typical Jesus fashion, he holds back from giving the answer and tests the young man with his own question. Why do you call me good? No one no one is good except God alone. It could also be rendered the only God or the one true God. And then he recites a list of ethical commandments from the Decalogue, which is really Exodus 20, chapters 12, sorry, verses 12 through 16, and Deuteronomy 5, verses 16 through 20. And Jesus is clever. He, he does this for a reason, because the man's question is, what shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Which indicates that he understands behavior to be the ultimate requirement of religion. It's what I do that gets me to inherit eternal life. And so that's what he quotes to him. He, he quotes to him the second half of the Decalogue, which is that dealing with moral law, the things you do. 
And these commands come from God, and they are meant to direct people to God, but Jesus raises them as a, as a way of challenging the young man's assumption that perhaps his, his moral uprightness is sufficient to bring him into the kingdom. And the fact that he brings it up means that he himself is doubting it, doesn't he? I mean, Jesus quotes all of these, these commandments, and he says, yeah, I've, I've been doing all of those since I was very young. And there's, there's no reason to, to doubt his response because Jesus, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I don't think that's the kind of response Jesus would, would offer someone who's being insincere or, or hypocritical or, or arrogant. I think he was being quite genuine in that he, he observed them. But there must have been a twinge of, of what am I missing? What is it that I'm, I'm missing and Jesus confirms that by saying, one thing you still lack. He's just been with children who lack everything. And he tells someone who's got everything, there's one thing you still lack. Go and sell everything. Give the proceeds to the poor. And then follow me. How ironic. This man possesses everything but still lacks something. Only when he sells everything and becomes like a vulnerable child, completely exposed and vulnerable to all kinds of discomfort in this life, will he possess everything. All of his stuff, all of his moral observation and piety is not enough. Jesus is calling him to do something now. It's not a substitute for Jesus. Jesus is calling him to give it all up and to follow him, to follow Jesus. Remember what I said about the law earlier on. The law of God is there to direct you to God and to point you to Jesus. If you don't get to Jesus and follow him, the law is, is useless to save. And this is where the young man falls. His countenance falls. This is the one thing he will not do. And, and Jesus hasn't asked him to do anything differently to what he's asked any of his other disciples. They've all had to give up something. They've had to give up their family. They've had to give up their fishing, their boats, their fields. But this young man could not. And we've got to be very careful of that in our day and age. The riches of the world choked the word of God in this man. And we live in a very wealthy society, even those of us who consider ourselves poor, we are extremely wealthy, and we need to be careful of that wealth, because it can choke the Word of God and put us in a position where we say no to Jesus, because what He's asking us makes us feel too vulnerable. Jesus isn't saying that poverty is an ideal. He's not saying that we need to all take vows of poverty, but He does regard the awareness of need that results from poverty as a blessing. Being aware that you are in need is so important, and it, it, it's the one thing that, that comes against self-satisfaction self and pride. And if it comes against self-satisfaction and pride, you'll find that having faith and obedience is so much easier. Okay, we're going to move on to the disciples. Verse 23, who's going to volunteer? 
at the back. There we go. Okay, I'm going to come into land with this. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Thank you so much. Right. Again, Jesus turns to his disciples. The word for look there, it doesn't quite, quite hit the note, but it's almost kind of like a, a deep look. Like he looked at, turned and looked at them as the young man was walking away in sorrow, asking them if they were going to follow. And if you look at the way that they, they responded here, um, if you look at the way that, that, that they dealt with what Jesus is saying in this passage, they were, they were stumped. They were completely blown away by this discourse. Because, as I said, in Jewish society, rich, wealthy, pious, going to heaven, no problem. But Jesus just blew that whole thing for them. And everything that they kind of thought of as blessed and successful was being knocked out of the park. And they're getting to this place where they start thinking, well, then, who can be saved? I mean, what is, what is the point of, of this? This is hitting them personally. They're getting really, really worried. And it's out of frustration that they ask that. Then, then who can be saved? But this is the very question that opens the doorway to hope. It's where Jesus answers them in the same way he answers the father earlier who has had the epileptic son. He says, with man this is impossible. Dad, you cannot heal your son. Disciples, your human efforts will never be enough to save you. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And that's the point of this whole sermon. That's the point of all of this teaching. That's the point of these three stories. It is not the disciples who will accomplish something for God or accomplish His will but God who will accomplish his word within them. God is the powerful actor in the story of salvation. Do not ever forget that. I'm going to read the last bit. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. 
but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Amen. And no, Peter, your sacrifices are not for nothing. All disciples must count the cost. But to do so as though there are no positives is like a groom walking into a wedding thinking about all of the things he is giving up without thinking about what he is gaining in his beautiful bride. And so we go to the beginning. What does discipleship look like? Ones who will pursue God's perfect plan. That's what we learn from marriage. Completely dependent on him for everything. That's what we learn from the rich young man because they are aware that they are ill-equipped for the task. That's what we learn from our children. Worship team, can you come up? How are we going to respond to this? Let's stand. If we are disciples, we come to him with empty hands. Let's put out our empty hands. Let's spend a few moments just thinking. As, as we were listening, what were the things that were standing out to us? What are the things that we know are a challenge? Do we take the easy way out? Do we think, nah, no one will miss me. It's not my fault if I'm not feeling it. Everyone will be better off if I'm not around anymore. Maybe it, would be a, it was just a mistake, just, just something that uh, I did in the, the foolishness of youth. Perhaps you're proud. I have the means to look after myself. Or more humbly put, I don't want to be a burden on anyone. God helps those who help themselves. Perhaps you struggle to, to trust that, that he has good plans for you. Perhaps you, actually when you think about it, you, you believe in him, but you, 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 don't, you don't believe he's going to look after you now. What is it that you hold in your hand which is, is a danger to your salvation? What is it that you hang on to for security? What is it that, that makes you feel like you, are, you have sufficiency? Let's hold those things. Remember what I said about, about marriage and divorce. Because we fail, it doesn't mean that God's original intention and design changes. We need to acknowledge where we fall down. We need to acknowledge where we struggle and call it for what it is. But the beauty is we can come and we can give that to Christ. He went to the cross and he paid the price for all of our sin, for all of our blasphemy, for all of our iniquity. So Lord, as we come to worship you, as we come to sing songs to you of your greatness and who you are, Lord, we take all that we have, which just seems like dirty rags, like filth compared to you. And we realize that it is nothing. This is just not a good offering, Lord. 
This is nothing that I could bring to the table. And so I come to you with nothing but mess and empty hands, nothing that I can offer this relationship. And Lord, I just want to thank you that you have provided it all for me, that you are sufficient for everything that I need in this life and the next. And let's, let's say to him together, Lord, we stand understanding what it means to be a disciple, knowing that it takes commitment and pushing in to your good, pleasing, and perfect will. And Lord, we commit to doing that if you will lift us up and give us what we need. In Jesus' name. Amen.